Hi, I'm Georgia Barry, and you're listening to Episode 1, Season 2 of Undercover. Welcome back. It's safe to say that the entire world has been affected by coronavirus. The arrival of a vaccine has been a glimmer of hope over the past year. Globally, vaccinations are being administered to help prevent the community spread. The vaccination program has been different in each country. In Australia, vaccination has been slow and many people within the community have grown skeptical as vaccine misinformation contaminates every nook and cranny of the internet. Today, we'll explore the effect of misinformation in different communities, how it gets there, how it spreads, and what form it takes. This season, RMIT Journalism will bring you stories on vaccine misinformation. With the Australian government beginning to roll out vaccines, it's worth thinking about why some people in our community are so distrustful. Surprisingly, not all the reasons are vaccine-related. Matt Parnell has more. So, the thing about conspiracy theories is that the version you hear about on the street is probably comparable to a fifth draft, the sanitised version of the sanitised version of something far weirder than what you hear. You've heard about 5G causing coronavirus, but have you heard about Bill Gates personally bankrolling it? That the reason the vaccine causes clotting is because it contains the same adrenaline distillate you read about in Hunter S. Thompson novels, or that that chemical is harvested from babies who are being stored in a network of tunnels under Flinders Street Station. Here's another one. The pandemic, or plandemic, was originated to cover up the fact that Wuhan was the location of an adrenochrome harvesting plantation where chemicals were extracted from the 800,000 children who go missing every year in China. So, how did these two analogous conspiracy theories develop? They're the same haywire idea with different origin points, but how exactly did we get here? Misinformation is a difficult thing to chart. That's the kind of thing that you know intuitively, producing a story like this, and it's hard to find any kind of compelling evidence to prove where these ideas even begin to germinate, because so many of the conspiracy theories, especially the farther you go down the rabbit hole, are unverified. Fortunately, the University of Western Australia are developing what they're calling the Coronavax Project to chart this misinformation. I spoke to their media scholar, Tawel Harper, for more information. You know, the overall picture here is that states uh, like the Australian nation doesn't have the control over the communication environment that it used to have like 20 years ago. Social media has made it that much more easy for misinformation to seep in from any other source um, whatsoever. And many people don't trust the government. These narratives are driven by Australians imitating what goes on in America. It's hard to chart the misinformation itself, but its impact is undeniable. Studies from the conversation in Australia and Pew Research in the United States in similar time periods charted declines in overall vaccine trust. These studies asked people whether they would definitely or likely get the vaccine. In November in Australia, nearly a third of participants described themselves as maybes for a vaccine, a similar number to the probabilities in America. That pattern is there. A lot of the times the arguments that have been made in Australia are just parroting arguments being made in America, even when the arguments don't apply to Australia. You know, they might be talking about vaccines being made mandatory or um, 
vaccine passports being required or, or something like that. And it's like, well, no, that's not even happening here. Tower believes that while this distrust does mirror what happens in America, it's born out of an inherently Australian distrust in authority. We do see individual messages where they say things like Facebook or YouTube has banned us or keep censoring our videos. So we're moving on to Telegram or we're moving on to um, a different platform. Do you think that these people have a committed following to change either their social media platform or their outlook? Yes, there will be some of the most passionate supporters will move with them for sure. For the kind of advocates, uh, the people who not just listen to them, but also re, uh, resend their messages to others, they will follow them because they believe passionately. So, you know, they're seeing what they're doing as, as in some sense, a, a crucial thing so there's other ways for them to kind of spread their misinformation and then of course you've got people as nodes that can kind of push that information back onto facebook back onto twitter my research leads me to feel more worried about these nodes people who consume and then regurgitate information back to Facebook and Twitter that lead to it becoming part of the zeitgeist. Without these nodes, Australia doesn't get sanitised versions of the grander conspiracy theories, which is the driving force of this misinformation. So the anti-vax ideas that get the most public traction in Australia are the ones that have some element of reasonable sense to them. So the misinformation is really spreading amongst these kind of... Um, enclaves of people who passionately believe in this uh, different worldview and who want to spread them as ambassadors. What data is publicly available reflects this. Misinformation moves from America to Australia. Public figures rally against the establishment and move to alt social medias like Telegram and Signal. Some of their follower base goes with them. That follower base regurgitates sanitised versions of the same ideas back onto more public social medias, which gets picked up by people who see that element of reason without seeing what happens in these enclaves. This knowledge, combined with the data that reflects growing mistrust of the vaccine, even before the Australian government's AstraZeneca bunglings, paint a scary picture looking forward for the state of vaccine misinformation in Australia. Thanks to Towel and the Coronavax team for taking time to contribute to this story. Their findings will be published in five papers shortly and will be linked in our show notes. So... We've heard how online misinformation spreads. Next, a story about how many faith members of the community have turned towards faith leaders for advice regarding the spread of misinformation about COVID and the vaccine. Tasneem Chopra, a cross-cultural consultant, sits down with Shamsia Husseinpour for a Q&A on how faith leaders are dealing with tackling vaccine misinformation. Why do you think there's a lot of misinformation floating around? I think there's misinformation about vaccine efficacy because of some media reportage and not necessarily just within Australia. I think you, certainly the Western media has, has a lot to answer for, but there's a reliance for communities here within the cult sector, the culturally and linguistically diverse sector, to rely on messages and information coming from home, their home countries. And often that's at odds with, say, the, the knowledge and the science and the research in Australia. So I think the reliance on that information in, in deference to what information is available in Australia, it causes people to get confused. And when you're confused, that causes hesitation. 
And can you tell us a bit more about why people are so confused about COVID vaccines? Often in communities where people might rely on a figurehead or someone prominent for their information source. And while that's well intended, it can be misguided. And what I mean by that is if you have if you have if your car breaks down, you wouldn't go to a florist. Um, you'd go to a mechanic. If you had, um, by the same token, if you needed a bunch of flowers, you wouldn't go to a surgeon, you'd go to a florist. So you, you have to be conscious about who you're seeking your information from. And just because someone has a loud voice doesn't mean they're always right. Just because someone is popular or high standing in the community doesn't necessarily mean they have the scientific background and the medical skills or qualifications to make a statement. I think that particular angle of, of logic, I'd say, or reasoning has somehow been compromised in this vaccine and even in the COVID um, discussions within communities where, where people are believing conspiracy theories or misinformation without fact checking simply because it's coming from someone they trust. And while I understand how people might naturally do that, th these are health issues. And it would be really prudent and logical in my belief, in my estimation, to have that information checked medically by a reliable medical source as well. And have you been hearing any misinformation from people around you in any gatherings? I've only been hearing incidental comments from people online. So within my own professional network and personal network, overwhelmingly, People are, you know, pro-vaccine, understand that it's part of the greater good, that the sooner we achieve herd immunity, the sooner as a global society we'll be able to get back to some sort of normality. Looking at the longer term goal, sure, people, are, in my, my opinion, don't have any reason to be spouting misinformation because they want things to get back to normal. And not normal because they're in denial, but normal because they want us to recover, to get the shots, to get the treatment, to isolate when we have to, to understand what the symptoms are. And there's a lot of information out there now available. So when people continue to have that misinformation, it's not because they don't have access, it's because they don't want to believe it. I think that's the troubling part. But to answer your question initially, no, I've not heard misinformation from my networks, but I've heard it from people about other people. So fortunately, that's a good thing for me. But um, I, I feel my heart just aches when I hear people that I know say, but so-and-so in my family have said, you know, the vaccine will be dangerous because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, oh, you know, yeah, sad. Why do you think people are more comfortable, uh, you know, going towards a faith leader for an advice um, as opposed to an authority? I would put it down to, you know, habit. So often we, we, go, to a, we go to a religious leader or to a sheikh or to a start or someone because we have a decision to be made on something that we can't, understand or is beyond our comprehension. And so, you know, it's, it's out of respect that we'd seek their judgment or advice. When we're seeking advice about whether to pursue a medical procedure or a medical course of action, however, um, that's not the skill set of the sheikh. They're not medically qualified, unless they happen to, happen to be a doctor, or in this case, an infectious disease specialist and a sheikh, which I have not yet come across, um, then I think fine. But to be seeking medical knowledge from a sheikh when it's um, um, when you have uncertainty about issue is, in, in, again, is in my estimation, a wrong move to make. When there are so many doctors available within our communities who speak in language from our culture, who we can seek out. And I guess to make the point, bring it home, there are sheikhs in our community who do that, who themselves will say, this is a medical issue and we should seek medical advice. Pending that medical advice and whatever the outcome is, then you can say, hey, okay, you know, this is what it's meant to be. But by all means, follow the directions and follow the recourse. If there was no advice from the medical authorities, 
and we didn't know what to do, I can understand why people are going to sheikhs. But as long as we actually have very clear instructions and directions which are evidence-based and supported by science and research and the Muslim doctors in our community, I say you know, that there isn't any excuse to look elsewhere. What's your last advice? What, what would you give to the people who are still believing this information about vaccines and about COVID in general? Yeah, trust in, the, trust in the experience of professionals who have our best interests in heart. So, I mean, people who say, well, you know, if it's going it, to, when your time is up, your time is up. I would say, well, if, if that was the case, we wouldn't be getting advice constantly from professionals about being healthy, about exercise and dieting and wearing a seatbelt and following road signs. So all of these mitigating measures that we encounter in our daily life have only ever happened because at some point, somewhere, an expert has said this is the best way to go. So for me, COVID-safe measures, taking a vaccination is no different. This Q&A is a part of a larger story which Shamzia will be reporting on later in the season. As 2021 brought hopeful news of a start to the Australian COVID vaccine rollout program, many Australians have been eager to receive their dose of the jab in hopes of welcoming a COVID-free world. However, not everyone has been receiving positive news about the vaccine. Eleanor Wilson reports on how misinformation spread on Chinese messaging app WeChat is causing vaccine concern in the Chinese-Australian community. It's six o'clock on a Monday in Melbourne and Sue Jung is leaving her home for the morning shift at her job at an aged care facility. At Sue's workplace, most of her co-workers and the residents they look after are fellow Chinese Australians. She says being some 9,000 kilometres from where she grew up in Beijing, China, her culture remains a big part of her everyday life. I'm grateful to be able to provide for elderly Asians. We belong to the same race, they can understand our language and we can take care of them. It's really rewarding. Sue and her colleagues are personal care assistants, which means they're eligible for phase 1A of the coronavirus vaccine rollout. But many Chinese Australians at Sue's nursing home have reservations about receiving their dose after false information about the injection began to spread through social messaging app WeChat. They report on the vaccine and it gets forwarded to me on WeChat to try to convince me the vaccine is not safe. Or when we're in the break room at work, we'll have a debate about the vaccine and the articles. Some people are saying they won't have the vaccine because they're scared. WeChat is a Chinese messaging app, a little bit like WhatsApp, and it's used by almost 700,000 Chinese-speaking Australians. The app provides an important platform for Chinese diaspora, like Sue, to communicate with friends and family back home. But misinformation articles spread to the Chinese community through the app's news page could pose a risk to Australia's vaccination efforts. The articles say there's been deaths in America or deaths in France or deaths in England because of the vaccine. I can't remember exactly, but there are many countries. Some say there have been vaccine-related illnesses such as blood clots, 
and others are saying it will affect your DNA and affect the immune function of your entire body. That's why there are some people that are nervous. Sue tells me she receives vaccine misinformation in multiple group chats on WeChat, with one messaging group containing over 100 other members who read the articles as they're sent in by fellow group members. On WeChat and when I'm at work in the tea room and people are talking, I get the impression the amount of non-believers and believers in the vaccine are about the same. Say for example, if there are five people talking, maybe at one time there are two or three people that don't believe in the safety of it and don't want to take the vaccine. It's still a big portion. One of these people is Sue's friend Sunny, who came to Australia as a Chinese-Indonesian immigrant in 1987. While Sunny says he doesn't use WeChat to source information on the vaccine, he carries similar safety concerns to many of Sue's Chinese co-workers. With the vaccine at the moment, I don't see any benefits at all. To me, it's all the risk. There's no benefit. It's all just the risk. Sunny is not concerned with his DNA being compromised through the vaccine, but he still doesn't hold trust in the science used to produce it. According to the information I gather, they're using a new technology called the mRNA, which I have no confidence in them at all, because you, you just don't have enough time to prove that they are safe. I mean, they're safe probably at the moment when you inject to yourself, but down the line, you don't know what's going to come up. I think for uh, middle-aged or elderly people, I think that's a very common uh, sentiment. People don't want to change, especially around their bodies. Eric Ma is Victorian Deputy Secretary of the Chinese Community Council of Australia, who are a peak advocacy body for the welfare of Chinese Australians. Certainly, um, the, the CCCA, we do not want to see our community members being influenced by misinformation or even anti-vaccine sentiment. So that's something that uh, concerns me because I think uh, we need more you know, information, we need more, more motivations for the um, elderly population to get inoculated. After all, the vaccines are really here to protect them. They are the most vulnerable groups. While vaccine discontent may be common within Sioux's social circle, according to the council, the wider Chinese-Australian community represents a broader range of vaccine opinion. Luckily, we do not see a, a sizable anti-vaxxer group identified within the Chinese-Australian community. So people have concerns. It's completely justified, uh, especially around the side effects, I would say. Um, but it does not render people refusing in inoculation. Therapeutic Goods Administration Official government information on the COVID vaccine is available in Chinese languages, but new research from the University of New South Wales reveals it may have been too little, too late. Public health researcher Dr. Abella Mahimbo. In the, in the beginning, um, the information was really very, very slow and then it picked up. But then the main issue was also that although the resources were available on the government websites, communities really had issues with navigating the um, website, so they couldn't necessarily access the resources. When it comes to the ultimate question of how to reduce vaccine misinformation from spreading, some suggest WeChat may have to work in harmony with the Australian government 
for the greater good of the community. So essentially just um, engaging communities in the first place and having a core design approach. So ta tailoring the public health messages, taking into account the nuances that they have, the cultural issues and all of the other factors, and then using that to build, um, to develop uh, resources that are actually relevant to their needs. If the government could provide more information in Chinese, it might convince my co-workers that it is safe and they'd be less worried about receiving the vaccine. There's a lot for the government to think about. I think uh, during the pandemic, the government, uh, whether it's Australian government or Victorian government, had only begun to, to understand how to talk to the community. I think the governments need to nurture you know, local uh, WeChat accounts as a conduit to deliver uh, key messages to um, the people. Sue and her aged care colleagues are still waiting to receive news about when their facility will commence vaccinations. What they do know for sure is that, as carers for some of society's most vulnerable, they'll be strongly encouraged to put their personal opinions aside misinformed or otherwise, and roll up their sleeves to receive the COVID vaccine. It's so interesting to see how a communications app like WeChat can be so influential in dictating people's opinions. Next, reporter Olivia Devendra will be bringing us a story from the Hume City Council where the community has banded together to fight misinformation, protecting each other from coronavirus. It has been described as the fastest vaccine created in the history of medicine. Known as the AstraZeneca vaccine, it was developed by Oxford University scientists throughout the tumultuous year that was 2020. This particular vaccine has been under the spotlight in recent weeks as reports from across the globe have described rare cases of severe blood clotting appearing in patients after receiving the jab. Some of these clots have been fatal. I spoke with two aged care workers from Meadow Heights, one who was hesitant at first to take the vaccine and another who would have taken the vaccine but decided not to as she's currently planning a family. I was reading in the in the media, in the newspapers and everything and they said I was I was really scared about taking the vaccine because of the black clots and and they have really bad effects. I thought it would be not suitable for me to take it. Mohini recently received the vaccine. Her only complaint following the jab is that her arm hurts. The aged care worker has been following the story on TV and social media. Before her vaccination early this week, she was influenced by a post on the internet that made her fear the injections. I heard one time like one lady when she actually got the vaccine and after like two, three, maybe, uh, maybe after four weeks, she said that she had black clots at the side of the neck and also she found out that she had uh, lumps actually on the side of her breast and then when she went to to get tested like for her breast and then and after that she found out that she had breast cancer that was that was i feel the most like i mean if you are okay and then next minute like you have something put in your body and then you get sick like that it's it's hard isn't it? but her change of heart came after she realized then i thought later that it would be better for me to take it just in case like if i get sick you know like we work in hk so it's very hard like if they get sick, we, I mean, it would be 
like we can get sick, get sick as well. So that's probably why. Her colleague also believes the vaccine to be an important step forward for normalcy to return in her community. Having a vaccine is good for so because you know so many diseases just around us. Durga spoke to me after finishing her shift. She decided that the best option for her was to not take the vaccine. I'm not sure because for my husband uh, because we both in a one family so I told him not to take it to him too because we're planning a baby. Her decision was made when her workplace handed out the consent forms. There it asked her whether she was planning to get pregnant or currently with child. As she intends to start a family soon, Durga decided to speak with her supervisor. Because uh, it was in the form they mentioned they have so many questions. Yes. You know, do you have any disease, other disease? Are you trying to get pregnant? Or are you pregnant? Are you breastfeeding? So yes. I take, uh, I try to get pregnant. Yes. And after that, I talked to my manager. Uh, she told, okay, if you are trying to get pregnant, uh, if it's up to you. If you like, you can have it. If you, one personal opinion, at the moment, I'm not ha taking vaccine. Durga believes the vaccine to be an overall good thing, but wants to play it safe as she starts building her family. So it's better to having vaccine. I worried, but not for everyone, but uh, only few people, they yes. get blood clots. Other people are okay. Both Durga and Mohini don't fear any severe negative side effects to take place if their families take the vaccine, although they themselves have made cautious decisions. Councillor Naeem Kurt from the local government of Hume has a positive outlook for the future community had it really, really difficult last year, but I saw incredible, incredible strength and incredible resilience from the community in the way they, they dealt with this crisis and uh, uh, reinforced the incredible character that I think our community has. And it's given me uh, uh, all the confidence that we can uh, face whatever challenges come our way into the future. The council member has been impressed by how communities have been helping each other understand. One of the real uh, positives as well has been um, uh, the way that uh, families have been talking about this, particularly uh, uh, people's children speaking to their parents and trying to uh, explain the situation to them in language that they understand, giving them the information that they need as well. The exact cause of the blood clotting has yet to be found. Professor Bruce Thompson of Swinburne University explains. We don't really know that there seems to be an antibody that sort of generates that the blood actually ends up being stimulated by and starts clotting, but we just don't know. However, once adverse reactions to medications are known, researchers and doctors work towards preventing those negative outcomes, like the blood clotting phenomenon. And the doctor now knows also this is a known side effect. So you roll up there and say, I've just had my AstraZeneca vaccine two or three weeks ago. I've now still got a headache that hasn't gone away. They won't need to image or do anything like that. They'll just put you on straight treatment for blood clotting. Epidemiologist Professor Thompson says that trusting researchers is the way forward. We really need to instill hope uh, and positivity and trust the science. You know, we, we are good at this. We only need to look at, at the fact that a little bit over years ago we didn't even know about the virus, how devastating it's been, and we now have a vaccine that is actually going to stop it. That's just amazing. Your community can have such a strong impact on your ideas. It really shows how important it is to surround yourself with people who are positive, supportive and well-informed. Despite all the vaccine misinformation in the media and on our social feeds, many people have opted to receive the vaccine outweighing the risks associated. 
Lydia Menchie interviews elderly patients at Better Life Medical Centre who have decided to receive the vaccine. Usually, I'm the first to arrive at the clinic. I really wanted to record myself telling you about today, a special day of vaccination for some of the patients. But this morning when I arrived, I saw the doctor's car and two of our patients' cars. I hope I'm still able to record myself walking towards the clinic. But when I get out of my car, I see one of the patients already waiting for me to go inside. Good morning. Good, how are you? Good morning, Better Life Clinic. Lydia speaking. As you can already tell, I actually work here and we'll see how the day goes. It's been very busy and it's only the first hour of the day so it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the day goes and especially when we start giving the COVID vaccination. Uh, we normally do that on Saturdays at 12.30 um, and it's fully booked so yeah I guess we'll see what happens. <laughs> As the practice manager, Angie Tudros, was sitting next to me at the reception desk and it wasn't busy, I asked her if she could explain the process of applying for the COVID-19 AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, it was a bit complicated. It's all started in January when the health department sent an email for everyone uh, about EOI, expression of interest. That was an email sent to each general practitioner uh, if we are interested or not to get the COVID vaccine in our clinic. So it was a long questions and long answers. How many patients you have? Did you do immunization before? Is your immunization program was strong in the last years, like flu vaccines and um, normal kids, children vaccines and everything? So I answered all these questions and I said, yes, I am interested in doing the COVID vaccine in our clinic. Uh, the answer came around uh, early March early months that yes, we got accepted to admin the immunization in here. Then they start communicating with us with all the information and how it will go and how many items I will get and what is the, the things we have to provide. Then I went and knocked on the doctor's room and asked if I could have a quick chat with him before our next patient. I sat down where patients normally sit. He was sipping on his coffee. I am Dr. Magdi Tudros. I am registered uh, as a specialist GP in, in Australia for uh, 11 years. I'm working full time at Peter Life Clinic. I am the principal GP of the clinic. And then I asked him for his thoughts about the announcement by Chief Health Officer Brendan Murphy made on April 8th regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine. We now feel that at an abundance of caution, given that this syndrome seems to occur mainly in younger people, 
for whom the risk of severe COVID is not so great that there is a basis to have a preferred recommendation for those under 50. Firstly, I'm expecting any change at any time. I'm open mind for any change. I'm I'm expecting everything because I'm still it's still not solid information or not clear enough to be um, one step for everyone, no. Uh, for the government to change, I think it's it's a little bit late because I think this uh, concern was raised last month because of the um, um, some cases in Europe. But now the, the government, after we started and make lots of, um, of issue over the media and the clinics under pressure of the, of the, of the vaccine um, for not our patients, we don't have history and we the government asked us to see all the patients and after two weeks or three weeks from this hard time and the stress now we say no we don't recommend the vaccine for below 50 so it's not the best way to manage uh, I think it's um, should uh, take actions more faster and um, uh, I think Australia is a rich country why my question why didn't offer Pfizer uh, one for all, all Australian, so you can afford to give Pfizer everyone, and you can do uh, a clinics in the hospital, like a COVID-19 uh, swab test to do a test. Oh. You can do a similar vaccine clinic oh. yeah, in, the, in, in the hospital for everyone. We give the Pfizer, and this is the best option. But anyway, this is a government. Our adjusted nurse, Michaela Hale, explains the process of giving the vaccine to the patients. A fun fact is that Michaela used to be one of our receptionists while she was still studying nursing. She graduated and now works as a nurse. The process behind uh, administering the COVID vaccinations involves uh, taking the dose out of a multi-dose um, vial, uh, which can sometimes be a little bit grueling. However, um, you're able to at least take a few doses out before administration to be prepared. Uh, and then we go through some questions in the consent form with the patient to make sure they're aware of any side effects or risks. Um, then it just involves making sure the patient is settled, happy to have the vaccination, um, and then just to monitor them for 15 minutes afterwards, ensuring that um, they haven't had any kind of anaphylactic reaction to it immediately. After this 15 minutes, it's just about reassuring the patient that if anything serious does happen, that they should contact either the hospital or present to the emergency department, um, just to make sure that everything is okay and they haven't had a significant reaction to the AstraZeneca vaccination. At 12.30 in the afternoon, the first patients arrive at the clinic. I got to chat with two of our patients to learn about their experience in 2020. My name's Julianne Fraser and I'm 64 years old. Yeah, Murray Clive Vincent, being 75, <laughs> young. Last year was not too bad actually. Um, it was very difficult at work. I work in aged care. I was in admin. My role increased by at least another 100% because it was horrendous. So when I went home, I didn't need to go out, didn't need to do anything because I was just too tired. Oh, it was hard, yeah. Um, monotonous. <laughs> Staying home all the time, monotonous, yeah. But this is how they coped with 2020. Watch Netflix. <laughs> what did you watch on Netflix? Stranger Things, I absolutely did that. And um, Lucifer. Oh, okay. 
that's addictive. Oh, really? Yes. If you get past the first one or two episodes, it's quite addictive. TV. <laughs> <laughs> what did you What did you watch? Ah, uh, mainly movies. Movies. Netflix and Stan. And this is how they feel about getting vaccinated today. Ah, uh, very good. I think everybody should be. Mm. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile. I don't know. I just do it for the people I work with. Needles don't worry me. Vaccinations don't worry me. I just do it. Would you do it if you were not working in aged care? Probably. For more so for other people's sakes as well as mine, because that's probably bigger than my own protection. Is the people I care about. Today, we've heard how susceptible our community is to misinformation. We've also heard the stories from people who have put faith in the hands of our government to keep the community safe and healthy. It's our responsibility to keep those most vulnerable in our communities safe. If you have any concerns about the vaccine, it's important to talk with your GP. You can access up-to-date information on the Australian Government Vaccine website. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Undercover Podcast. You can follow Undercover on Twitter at cover underscore podcast. If you want to reach out, feel free to leave a voice message on 9018-5005. We'd love to hear about your experience with vaccine misinformation. Thanks to our reporters, Matt Parnell, Eleanor Wilson, Olivia Devendra, Shamzia Hussainpour, and Lydia Menchi. Today's episode was brought to you by RMIT Journalism. Special thanks to our producer, Damon Rouston, and to our executive producers, Tito Ambio, Janak Rogers, and Zoe Daniel. Stay on the lookout for episode two, which will be published same time next week. Hope you're having a lovely day. See you later.